Welcome to Tampa Tantrum, The Lost Files. Back in the summer of 2012, myself, Stephen Layton, and Colin Harmon hosted a group of 12 coffee luminaries to come present on a coffee topic of their choice at the SCAE World of Coffee event in Vienna. This was not the first time we'd put on such an event, but it was the first time we didn't have control of the AV crew for the production. The previous two events, we collated a set of videos that can be viewed at tampatantrum.com, but in Vienna, something went horribly wrong with the video quality we had. Although something does get lost without the visuals, I decided that instead of them being lost forever, that I would make them available in an audio format. This is the fourth in the series, and this is one that I'm really excited about sharing with you from David Nigel Flynn. His performance was at the time where there was a big performance on the WBC stage, so a lot of people weren't able to see this, and I'm so excited to share you with you at this time. So please give it up for Mr. David Nigel Flynn. Alright, hello. Hey. Um, so, uh, my name is David Nigel Flynn, like Steve told you. Um, I am an American living in Paris. I've been there almost three years now, and uh, it's been a good time. Um, and I want to talk to you today, not exactly about coffee, but about um, kind of the intersection of coffee and culture, cafe culture more or less. Um, I'm not a sociologist, I'm a barista. But uh, I do think we baristas have a tendency to start pretending like we're sociologists behind the bar. We meet a lot of people, and we get to see a lot of different people come through the shops. And uh, so I'd like to give you a little bit of my take on what's been happening in Paris. Um, the title of my presentation is Jus de Chaussette, Sock Juice. Um, I'm going to leave you to stew on that for now if you don't already know what it means. Um, but let's get on with it. So France. In a lot of ways, it's changed. People, you know, they don't dress exactly like that anymore, but it's more or less the same. Um, you know, I've been there three years now, and I don't know. I've learned a lot. So I think most of us, the only things we do know about Paris if we don't live there, or at least coffee in Paris, come from Oliver Strand's New York Times articles, um, which basically sums up as, why is the coffee so bad? Um, I'm not going to answer that today. Um, there's plenty of reasons, and you can talk to Oliver about all of them. He's been searching them for a while. So, but I'd like to talk about one way in which it might just get a little bit better. And you know, the question, why is it so bad, seems really pertinent because there are things in Paris like wine, like food, and cafe culture that are so amazing. So, well, let's take a look at it. First, I'd like to tell you a little bit about where I'm from. I'm from the US and uh, sections called Just a Regular Coffee, Please. Um, if you've worked behind a bar, you know what this means. You've heard it before. Someone has asked you for just a regular coffee. Um, means different things, different places. And in the US, it most certainly means filter coffee, a big, big mug of filter coffee. There are regional differences. There's the New York coffee mug. There's the East Coast diner mug. There's insepid, lightly brewed coffee from the north central part of America. There's Mr. Coffee. But basically what it comes down to is it's filter coffee. Um, and people are happy with it for the most part. Um, you can ask a barista, I think, and most of them would tell you that if there's no quality specialty shop around, 
they'd probably just go for a mug of diner coffee and they might even put milk and sugar in it. Um, it's something daily, it's something quotidian, and it's generally not very good. Um, so I put up this picture not to make fun of big mugs of filter coffee, but to show that you know people are happy. They're really happy with it. And like with anything daily or quotidian, it has its sort of signifier, which is this, I think. Um, this is maybe an extreme example, but when you walk in somewhere and you see a hot plate percolator like this one, you immediately know what's coming. It's a regular coffee, and it's probably not going to be very good. Um, but that's okay. Um, so let's suppose for a second that you live in this culture and you want to change it. You want to propose coffee as something quality. You know, you don't want to serve just a regular coffee. What do you do? Um, given that we're at World Barista Championship, you may have heard some people actually did this um, 20 or 30 years ago, depending on when you want to put the date. And they said, we're going to serve this. We're going to serve an espresso, this tiny little ristretto. And people aren't going to have a clue what it is. And that's how we're going to propose something different and something quality. And this is really, I think, how it happened in the US, how quality came into the US is through espresso, through these tiny little shots of something that people had never seen before. Um, this is the murky coffee menu where Steve mentioned I worked. Um, we can laugh about it now because there's lots of drinks that a lot of us probably wouldn't want to serve anymore in our bars. Um, caramel lattes, anyone? Large 20 ounce caramel lattes, anyone? But I think it's instructive because this entire half of the menu is just full of espresso drinks. That's all there is. And that's, that's how people, at least in Washington, D.C., came to know about quality coffee through these large drinks and through these espresso beverages. Now, Murky did serve drip coffee, but it's relegated to the side of the menu because that's just regular coffee. And everything else we're serving is what's new, it's what's interesting, and it's what people learn to love. So, Back to France, un café s'il vous plaît, a regular coffee please. Now, French café culture is a lot of things. It's a French café is a place to meet up with people, it's a place to sit, it's a place to read, it's a place to eat, and also it's a place to get a beverage that might be coffee. Um, you know, there are still des grands cafés, like Café Fleur, for example. Um, that are there, but all in all, cafes in France are really all very similar to one another. They all serve the same products. They all serve them in more or less the same way. All that changes is the decor and where they're located, which means the best cafe is probably the one that is closest to where you live, closest to where you work, or just where you happen to be at that moment. Um, so you walk into a cafe. This is Thomas. Um, he works in a cafe. And you ask for a coffee, and he serves it to you. And he'll probably do it quickly. He'll probably do it with the minimum of attention possible. And it will most certainly be an espresso. Um, so France is an espresso culture. Not like Italy is, not in the sense of having this tradition of making coffee behind the bar. There's no craft in the way that French people, French barmen make coffee. It's, it's not important. What's important is that they do it quickly, that they do it while chatting, and that then they get it to you. And um, the focus is definitely not about the taste of the coffee. It's coffee as a medicinal delivery system, and it's coffee as an excuse to talk with other people or 
if you're a tourist, go to the bathroom. It's just, it's not meant to be tasted. And Ancafe encompasses three different beverages, really. It's Ancafe, which is a demi-tasse cup, a single shot filled all the way up to the top. That's Ancafe. The somewhat more rarely ordered Café Sale, which is a single shot filled about three quarters of the way up. And then, of course, the Allongé, which is what we would, I guess, a cappuccino cup. At best, it's a single shot of espresso cut with water. And at worst, it's a single shot espresso let run until it fills up the cup. Um, and the Allongé, I think it's important to note, is really popular. People love it. Um, I know I spoke with a friend, Anthony Bendel, once, and even in Montreal, it's also a very popular drink. It's something that people take, and they sit in the cafe, and they sit for a while. The fact that it's long lets them justify sitting there for a long time. So, But, you know, when you're in a cafe, you could do like I do and just get this instead. And it'll probably be served in exactly the same way, with exactly the same attention, and it serves exactly the same purpose. So, you know, these places aren't places, they're called a cafe, but really that's not what they're about. They're about something social. Um, they're places for beer, they're places for wine, and people are happy with them. They're happy with what that is. They don't want change. They like their regular coffee, just like these people like their regular coffee. Um, and just like the diner, it also has its signifier, its sign of what's to come, and that's this. Um, this on the left is a machine for making regular coffee, and this on the right is also a machine for making regular coffee. In our little specialty quality niche, we often think about it as a tool. We take great coffee, we grind it, we walk up to this machine, and then we make magic happen, or we make something, something delicious come out of it. And that's one way of thinking about this. But in France, I would say that really, this just makes a regular coffee in the same way that the hot plate percolator just makes a regular coffee. It doesn't do anything else. And so, if you take our example from the US, this is Ristretto, this small espresso shot of amazingness. You then add another drink to the list. You have un café, un café serré, un allongé. And then you also have, il y a le café, ça c'est beaucoup plus trop fort pour moi, je voudrais un café. An entire list of things that, to translate for those of you who don't read French, basically mean, you just fucked this up. You just took a machine that makes regular coffee and you screwed it up. They've seen it hundreds of times in other cafes, and they've just, they're shocked because you've taken something that's regular, that's normal, and you've totally screwed it up. It's not what they asked for, and it's not what they want. So, if you're in this culture, how do you go about changing things? How do you propose something that's quality? And I would suggest that the answer is sock juice. Now, if the photo is not exactly clear. Sock juice is a somewhat negative phrase to mean filter coffee. Um, and I think the title says enough of how people perceive it in France. Um, in the rest of the world, this is a French press. In France, it's most certainly not. And if you told them that this was a French press, they'd probably look at you with this quizzical expression and say, what are you talking about? That's a cafetiere piston, and Bodum sells them. It's got nothing to do with France. But filter coffee actually does have a long history in France. There was coffee, obviously, before the espresso revolution. And people remember their grandmas, for example, making filter coffee. And they're quite nostalgic about it if they haven't had it in years and years and years. And they've certainly never seen it proposed in a cafe setting. So 
I, I would propose that much like espresso was in the US, filter coffee is actually the perfect vessel if you're a cafe that wants to propose quality. Um, and it's that for a couple of reasons. One, because already it's not a regular coffee. It's something different already. Um, another reason is that people aren't used to it. You can charge what you want for it. We're always a little bit want to talk about viability in cafes, and we often don't want to talk about prices and how much things cost. But this allows us to set a price that we as a shop and a roastery can keep buying good coffee. And everyone's happy. People are happy because they've gotten a great big beverage and it's tasted delicious. And we're happy because we can serve it to them. This helps as well. Um, obviously, you don't need a machine like this to make filter coffee. But it kind of can become a new signifier for what's to come. Just as the espresso machine or the hot plate percolator says, you're about to have a regular coffee, this machine says, you're about to have a coffee that is certainly not regular. And people are willing to taste it. And that's kind of the crazy thing. France may be an extraordinarily espresso culture. But at least at Telescope, we've found that people are extraordinarily open to tasting filter coffee. Um, we've had days where we've sold as many filter coffees as we have espressos and not just to tourists. Um, <coughs> so yeah, filter as a way to propose taste, as a way to propose a beverage that isn't, could be daily, but is mostly about taste. So before any of you cringe or before Trish sees this and gets really mad at me, I don't want to talk about comparing wine to coffee, but what I would like to talk about is the place of wine in French culture. Wine in French culture is two things. It's quotidian, it's daily, it's something people have on a regular basis, but it's also something that's to be tasted. And it occupies both of those spheres. Now, if you go into a regular street-side cafe in France and order a glass of wine, much like the coffee, I can almost guarantee you that it will not be very good. But if you go to a place like this, a bar vin, a wine bar, the wine might be extraordinary. And I think, in a way, this is France's answer to this problem that I think we also have in coffee, of how do we have a beverage that's daily, that's something for every day, and also a beverage that should be tasted, because those two spheres are somewhat hard to put together. And at least with wine in France, this is one solution, that it's two different spaces for those two things. There's the cafe for wine, and then the wine bar for really amazing wine. So I think this is one of those things that we can think about with filter, too. And with coffee, I know Colin at 3FE came up with a great solution to this problem of quotidian versus tasting with his tasting menu. Um, and I think it'll be interesting, especially in France going forward, to see how this issue of coffee as a daily beverage and coffee as a beverage to be tasted come together. So what does this mean if you're not opening a cafe in France? What I'd like you to take away with this is that up until this point, specialty coffee has been really focused on espresso. And I would say that we've had a I would maybe call it an Anglophone approach to this, that we've gone into countries that didn't have espresso, and that espresso has been our ticket to introducing people to coffee. And now, as our industry is growing and we're coming into countries that are espresso-based countries, countries that have had an espresso tradition for a long time, like France, like Spain, and like Italy, we need to change our approach, because there, espresso is a regular drink. And what we're trying to serve, I think, is something that's not regular. And the other thing is, as these countries develop and coffee gets better, and I really do think coffee will get better in France, 
and Spain and Italy. I think they're going to be the places that we can maybe look for potential solutions to the problem of whether our coffee is a daily thing or whether coffee is a taste thing and how it can be both. So thanks. Great stuff. Thank you, David. Thank you. Am I Oh my, I am on. You are on. Ooh, I like these seats. This is the best part. You can just get to chill and relax and no more presenting today. Exactly. How, how long have you been in, uh, in Paris for, David? I've been there for about three years now. So not a super long time, but long enough. How long did it take for you to kind of start to realize if you wanted to change things, you'd probably have to start doing it yourself? In a big city like Paris, because my expectation, if I was going, I don't know, like, I'm trying to think of a, a like, because I know Paris, because it's very close and I've visited, but I don't know lots, like Canada. My expectations in Canada would be I would get great coffee somewhere. Mm. Um, so I would turn up, m maybe think you might turn up in Paris thinking there'll be some good coffee somewhere. Yeah. Uh, you know, I knew of one place when I got there called the Cafe Tech, which I think for a long time was the only place that even presumed to make anything approaching quality in the rest of the world. The only place that thought of coffee as more than just a blend. And after working there for a little while, they're a great shop and I really respect them for all they've done. Um, but they've got a very specific vision and they're quite happy with their vision, which is great. I wish them well because they're happy with it. But I felt like after speaking with a few friends that there just needed to be more movement and there wasn't. Um, I had a conversation with Tama, who's actually a very good barista. He's not, he doesn't dress like that normally. Um, you made him dress up for I you. I made him dress up for me. Awesome. Um, and we had a conversation right before we started an association based on coffee where no one was talking about it, no one was doing anything, and there weren't any, there was no movement. So we, it was about a year, I guess, after I moved there, and we decided together that we needed to do something if only for our own coffee drinking pleasure and our own sort of enjoyment, because we, we were both pretty committed to working in coffee and we were committed to living in Paris. And at some point you just want to drink something that's not crap. <laughs> I, I, I think the thing that impressed me the most was when you told me about you, you, your first event. So you asked baristas in the community to come out and a and hundred people turned up. Well, that, that wasn't the first one. That was oh, okay. the third one. Okay. Third one. Third one, then. That's still third one. If I did something like that in, like, say, for instance, in London, where there, there is a, a, I think there's a very definite scene in London, and, and same in Oslo. If we did it there, I'd, I'd be stoked with, like, 50. You know, to get 100 in a place where there is, like, there, there isn't anywhere for them to be incubated, to, be, to, to grow into these baristas that want to know more. Yeah. How, how much free beer were you serving to these people? To make well, in the come? beginning, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was a free beer. Well, it wasn't free, actually. It was, it was three euros to come and do it. And then we gave away beer with that three euros. But, I, I mean, it's interesting. In the beginning, there were a lot of... There's a huge Anglophone community in Paris. There's yeah. a really big expat community. And then in the beginning, there was a lot of that expat community coming. And what kind of happened as we kept going was, well, for anyone trying to do anything anywhere, if the New York Times writes an article about you, you're set, and not because everyone reads the New York Times, but because all of the journalists read the New York Times. Yeah. And so what kind of happened was the New Oliver wrote an article about Frogbite, where he mentioned Frogbite. And then the French press 
totally picked it up and ran with it. And so we sort of slowly transferred from being you know, a French event with quite a big Anglophone community into an event that had a lot of French people coming to it who were just curious. You know, the French like tasting things. Sure. There's a culture of tasting things. And I, I'm not sure the problem with coffee in France is a problem of not... It's, it's a problem of exposure rather than a, a problem of, you know, not wanting it. The, the exposure that you got from the French press because of the Strand article in the Times, was that uh, positive press or yeah. it was like, were they wary of this, this American guy or? Um, no, it was completely positive. And it was a lot of young people writing, a lot of younger journalists, but also writing and calling out French, the fact that bad coffee was French. And well, I think in the long run, good coffee is going to have to become French for it to have any sort of power. Um, at least in the beginning, it was kind of okay for people to say that, you know, to look to England and be like, they do it better than us. And given French sort of pride, that's a problem. So we need to, we need to fix this situation. That's a big problem. You've, I mean. you've, you've <laughs> kind of got, uh, you've kind of, kind of got great f foundations, I guess, then, because the, the, the culture is obviously there. Yeah. French people love food, they love wine, they love good food, and they love good wine. So totally. it's kind of like, well, we just need to sort of inject some sort of uh, enthusiasm and yeah. and uh, get people sort of understanding it and blah blah blah. So it's it's for me, it's a super super interesting uh, sort of case study, I guess, yeah, to see. I, uh, I think it is, and I I guess I just recently watched Tim Stiles' presentation at the last time Tantrum and talking about the London scene and talking about how it was a blank blank slate. And Paris is like that, but in another way, I think it's a completely different slate than the one we've been used to up to this point. I, I think the ground is much more fertile in Paris than mm. it was in London. Mm. Like, you know, London happened because of the persistence of a, of a, a, a small group of people yeah. just being bloody-minded about it <laughs> happening, you know, uh, and eventually that worked. But I think in Paris, there is... There is good land for the seed to fall, you know, the, the, the fact that a hundred people turn up free beer or not is, is uh, you know, mm. proof that there's, a, there's an audience for it. I think, I think so, and there's more and more shops opening. Um, every time I turn around, there are shops opening, and it's interesting to see um, how it grows, and I hope it'll, I really hope it'll continue to grow and continue to get better. And, Thanks to, thanks to David, we have a customer in Paris, which is cool. So we, we, that's that, that's that's been fun. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, it just it just seems a, a really exciting time. I mean, how how is the? Because you opened the shop what three months ago now? Yeah, three months ago now. Yeah, and and has that gone how you expect? Have people accepted it? Have people been open to it more? Yeah, people have been really open to it. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned in the conversation in the presentation, but we've had we really have had days where we've sold as much or more filter coffee than we have espresso. And our numbers aren't that high right now, so it's, you know. Tell, tell us about the shop. What, what kind of experience would you expect <coughs> as, a, um, as a regular person as and as a coffee person? I would hope that it would be pretty similar. We, we've got, it's tiny. It's a really, t we've got five tables, I think, and a really big open bar. And the idea was just to create a, a comfortable space for people to come and drink coffee and really, really simplify everything as much as humanly possible. Our menu is, I don't know, seven things long. In, and just to offer 
I don't know, to offer coffee that you come in and you can order a coffee. And then if you want to talk about it, you can talk about it. And if you don't want to talk about it, you can have it and go away. I can imagine there must be a huge amount of uh, that extra skill of a barista for me is being able to know which customer wants to know everything about the coffee and which customer doesn't and yeah, how totally to sort agree. of measure that as well. So I can imagine, what are, I mean, what are the Parisian customers like in terms of, uh, are they skeptical or are they open to it or how's it been in, the, in that sense? There's a huge wide range of customers actually in Paris because there's people who have, there's a core group who have gone and lived abroad and then c tasted coffee elsewhere and come back. So they have an idea of it. There's people, might call them from like the old guard, like we might gourmet, the gourmet coffee, cult cafe, coffee culture. That, um, so they have an idea that coffee could taste like something, but they're not necessarily used to what we're serving. We serve quite... But, but, but maybe more open to the change. You totally know, I mean, that, I, I kind of love those. I see those as bigger challenge than the other. Cause they're, 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 there's some interest there. They've expressed an interest that they want. Like, they've tasted some coffee in the past and thought it tasted different. Jeez, that, that's, again, somebody to hit and approach. And I mean, there's a really funny thing that you can do if you work in a cafe in Paris. So I, I put up the, the image of, like, a ristretto shot that we serve in the majority of specialty coffee cafes across the world. You know, there are varying differences in size, whether you're Shomer and it's nothing, or you're in Europe and it's a little bit longer. People in France will look at that. They'll walk up to it and they'll say, mm, I didn't want that, you messed up my coffee. It's and then they'll say, it's too strong for me. I won't sleep tonight. Which, if we know about how coffee works, it probably has less caffeine than a longer shot. But, so you go back behind the bar, you pull a double shot and you serve that to them and you will hear silence, birds chirping and they might even thank you for making them such a great coffee. And there's just, the, there's so many preconceived notions of what, an, especially with espresso, what an espresso should be in France, which is why I think you kind of, if you want to change, you really have to sidestep the espresso conversation completely because otherwise you're just going to spend all day long talking to people that... I mean, what, what do you actually do in that instance when you serve them an espresso or a stretto or whatever and it is a lot less to what they would normally have? Would you get into the full spiel or would you just top it up with water and serve them an Americano or um, pull them a double I worked shot? at a place called Le Bal Cafe and there we served singles and there I would totally... We would serve a little pitcher of water on the side. At Telescope, I got so tired of this exact same interaction because you'll have it like if you serve single shots you'll have it 20 times a day at least like it's constant whereas if you just serve a double shot that's pretty much a full cup you'll have it very rarely and so we just at telescope we just serve double shots unless if you, if you want a single and you ask for it obviously we'll be happy to oblige but i'd rather just it's so far from what i actually want to talk about which is taste and what coffee tastes like that I try to avoid as many conversations yeah, like that as possible. I'm sure you can't wait to get over that hurdle of, yeah. of that conversation and, and develop it. I think the thing is there's always... That, that, like, you, you, if you want to appeal in a more commercial sense, and, and, and you know, Telescope isn't a charity, it's a shop that's opening no. up in a, in a brand new place, but there has to be some little bends of... 
you know, of, of, of what you want to do, what you want the vision to be. Otherwise, commercially, like yeah. a closed shop in three months isn't a lot of use to the, the French coffee community. You, you know, it's, it's, it's small battles and changing it over time. Certainly, certainly what I found with what, with what we do is, you know, it's important to, you have to start somewhere and then you start to change those perceptions and you can have those conversations with people that totally. if you don't do it, you can never have the conversation. Right, and I mean, we serve a long double shot that I don't, I quite like at this point. We roast, grind, do everything to make that shot really delicious, but and it's not the only way to pull a shot of coffee, but it's what we've done to make that part of our life easier. And then we've put the focus on a filter coffee. It's the first thing on our menu as much as humanly possible because then we can actually talk openly about it. Um, you, t you sort of touched on the coffee wine analogy, which some people love, some people struggle with. I personally think it's, there's a lot to take from the wine world, huge amount actually, and I would, I would reference it a lot. Mm. But do you, have you found that there's particular wine analogies or, or experiences that you can take being in Paris? And yeah, being uh, that, you know, if you ask a French person what, what grapes were in Champagne, probably at least 50% would be able to yeah. answer the question. Ask them to name three varietals of coffee and, you know. No, not, and I mean, one of, the, one of the things, I mean, I should say everyone in France knows everything about wine. You should just start with that. But Italians know everything about coffee as well. Right. Um, but at the same time, there are certain things that I've noticed in France. I think the wine industry in France is a much more reasonable and something much more interesting to emulate than the wine industry in the US, which may get at the heart of why some people have such a problem with the wine analogy. Um, but in France, I mean, in France, like coffee, it's daily. And one of the things I took from it is labeling on wines in France, I think is really sensible. And the idea of tasting notes, especially with that, um, there aren't tasting notes on bottles in France. There's where it's from, sometimes what it is. Um, and, it's, it's, and if it has any sort of description, it's on four axes. It's on acidity, it's on body, tannin, and is it fruity and young or not? And it's really simple and then, which is not to say that people aren't looking to taste all these other things, they are, but that's kind of the pleasure of drinking wine. So why would you ruin someone's drinking experience by telling them exactly what they're going to taste before they taste I it. I so agree, and I can't wait for the day that we remove... I mean, we, we have very simple tasting notes on our bags as well, and mm -hmm. I, I kind of like it at the moment, but I can't wait for the day where we're confident enough in our customers to only have, like, uh, where it's from, varietal, when it was harvested, you know, simple information like that, like you find on... You know, a, a bottle of wine from Burgundy or Sancerre or whatever. It's got appellation. It has, you know, it doesn't even have the wine grape on it because you no. know that this is what it is. So, to get to that point would be a, a really amazing thing. I think so. And then also, I don't, I don't know how familiar everyone is with like the natural wine movement in France at the moment is really strong, and some of it, like specialty coffee, is very bullshit. It's very like. People Disgusting. Get, right. People get, like they do with special, there are a lot of people that say they're specialty and it's just not interesting at all. And in natural wine, there's that as well. And it's been a movement over the past, I don't know, few years especially. Um, and people are starting to compare the specialty coffee scene in France to the natural wine movement, which is in a way good and in a way bad. 
it's a double-edged sword because of... W what's the comparison? I don't quite understand why they're similar. Well, it's this idea... Is it, is it the fact that there is a movement for it's, a it's, certain it's product? It's the fact that there's a movement and it's the fact that it's, it's kind of taking received wisdom and... Like say, small and niche, I guess, as yeah, well. Yeah, small and... I mean, that's yeah. basically what it is. Um, and, that, and the natural wine movement is, like the coffee industry, sometimes very dogmatic and very... I think it actually is a useful comparison because we have some of the same problems, you know. And, and, um, and, and the reason that we fall back on the wine analogy so much is because we're desperate for something that people understand, you know, so that people have a, can, can grasp as a consumer, um, you know, and, and I, I'm with you on it. I think there are lots of good things we can take from it and lots of bad things that we should, we, we, we should avoid from it. Mm. So, so what's next for Frog Fight? I mean, what's what's the the, the, the plan from here? Because you've created this monster. Like, what what does it do next? I don't know. To be honest, we just we just put on the French Brewers Cup, and that was great. And we had a ton of people there. And oh, you, oh, that's right. You were the lot that sent your barista champion six days before the competition. We were three weeks, but it's in three weeks. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I like to exaggerate these things. Make it much grander. <laughs> No, we, yeah, we just posted that and we had a, a pop-up cafe just serving filter coffee over three days that went really well. Um, I don't know, I would say Frogfight's in a period of relaxation right now. We, we're not, I think in some ways we've accomplished, our original goals were get everybody together, make a community, make baristas better, and make start something happening and I, I feel in a way and I think Tamar would agree that Frog Fight's accomplished its original primary and secondary goals so we're a bit rudderless at the moment because we're not sure what it's going to become and we're both now opening shops or have shops and that Running out of time. Yeah. So I, th I think the interesting thing is, though, that when you start those things and then the shops come along and that starts it too, it makes everybody else around who's already established and already there like get so much better at what they do. Like it's just the pure fear of like there's somebody like doing stuff there. You know, it's um, it's a great motivator for. Mm. And and you were saying to me when I was across recently how that had kind of started to happen that people were trying to market themselves better, to do better things, to have better coffee. Yeah, I think so. And talking about Frog Fight and where I wanted to go, honestly what I want is I want someone else to come along and say, someone else who's got a little bit more time and has got new ideas to take it further. And I hope, and make it more French, make it, every, you know, we, we really want more French coffee people because one critique I do have of the Paris scene right now is so many other, so many places have imported baristas you know, there's such an Anglo scene happening that, like, there's always an Australian or a, an American to pick off, put in a cafe for six months, and then they go, and so you lose. But that sounds like continuity. London. Like, it sounds like, <laughs> like any, anywhere. I mean, that's the thing is the barista community is such a mobile. Yeah. Which is yeah. great. Yeah. yeah. And it's, got, it's great that there are so many people doing it, but... Again, if it's going to be successful in the long run, it's got to be French, which means it needs to be made by French people. That simple. Superb. Well, um, thank you very much thank for you doing guys. this. Internet I really appreciate we got a, it. We got an internet question, I think. Oh, have we? Oh, yeah. Ooh, we like right. internet questions. Uh, could you ask David what is his price positioning and the feedback he gets from it? 
This is from Baptiste in uh, uh, Workshop Coffee in, uh, in London. Okay. Um, well, our pricing, gosh, right now for our filter coffee, we're, so, I mean, we're still figuring it out, to be honest, as we're, we're also roasting. And so as we're deciding and seeing what price we pay for coffee, that obviously changes how we can charge it, how much we can charge for it. But um, with filter, right now it's 450 in the shop for about 250, 240 milliliters of coffee, um, which I think, at least by US standards, would be quite shocking for people that we can say four euro fifty is our baseline price for this product. Um, and, and is that for pour over manual brews or is that for bulk brews? Manual pour over. Manual pour over. Bulk brew, we're introducing it in like a week. Yeah. I think, I hope. Yeah, uh, it's on its way. Okay, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll see about that. Um, it'll probably be a little bit less, but I don't see any incentive for us to make it, make filter coffee cheaper. It devalues the, this product that Absolutely. we've started valuing. Yeah. And I guess people are happy with it. People have no problem paying 450 for what, because they get a nice, they don't, whereas in America, maybe England, I don't know, you get a big mug of coffee and you say, that's supposed to be cheap. Here they see it, it's big, they're like, and it tastes good, so they think they're getting a deal. <laughs> yeah. Win-win. Superb. Well, we're going to take a, a little bit of a break now and we will put some videos and things on and we thank you very much for, for the presentation. Thanks, Top thank man. You, Cheers.